Well, if you'd like a title for the sermon today, the title is Like Father, Like Son. And we, we arrive at our next section in 1 Peter, and by God's grace, it actually turns out to be a good Father's Day passage. So I thought, I'll preach on this rather than a specific Father's Day message, because in some ways, the point of the, this message today, of this passage, is like father, like son. Uh, so let me read to you God's holy word from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Would you join with me in prayer? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your Holy Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today, as you know, is Father's Day. And at my son's school, my daughter's school, uh, they were having a Jersey Day and a father-son kind of meet and greet in the morning, 8.30 to 9. And they invited all the kids to wear a jersey and the parents to wear a jersey and kick a footy around, play some handball, play some soccer. And one of the things that was really interesting uh, was how many of the kids were wearing the same jersey as that of their parents. Uh, so the, the son or the daughter would come and, and you'd ask them, why do you support the Rabbitohs? And then she'd be like, well, he does. Uh, and there's a, there's a thing about kids that well, when they, whoever they love, they like to imitate. Um, and if they love their father, they like to imitate their father, even when it comes to supporting terrible football teams. Uh, and Jasper, you know, actually, he, he did bring both jerseys, a Storm jersey and a soccer jersey. And I don't know why he didn't wear his Storm jersey. I'll have to investigate and discipline him correctly. <laughs> uh, I did wear my Storm jersey, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it comes in the same way to us with our Heavenly Father. If we love Him and honor Him and respect Him, uh, we will want to be like Him. We will seek to imitate Him. We'll love what he loves, we'll do what he does, we'll hate what he hates. That's just the nature of how relationships work. When we love someone and respect them, we want to become like them. And that desire is the heartbeat of this hard text. It is a hard text, but the heartbeat of this text, and indeed the framing theme for the rest of the letter, is caught up in that imitation reality. Look at with me at verse 15 again. But as he, that is your heavenly father, 
As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You could rephrase that as one commentator, Karen Jobes does, in her commentary saying that the call of this passage is to be children of the Father. To be children of the Father, mimicking, imitating your heavenly Father. It ought to be like the saying goes, like father, like son, slash daughter, of course. And that's what the life of a Christian is. We live in an unholy, hostile world, and we're called to be like father, like son, like father, like daughter. We're called to live in the same way that God is. That's what it means to be a Christian, to imitate God. But if we're honest, reading a passage like this, the call to holiness and holy living is often something that seems too daunting, too unattainable. And if you're honest, and even if I was honest this week, because my heart was out of sorts at times, even somewhat undesirable. Because I often get mistaken that thinking holiness, be holy, means missing out. We see it as a negative thing. I was recently in Ethiopia, and as I, you know, received the travel guide to go to Ethiopia and looked up what it's like in Ethiopia, the first things were all negative. It was, when you get there, watch out for the customs officials. They, you might have to bribe them to get through. Don't drink the water. You could get typhoid. Uh, don't eat the street food. You can get yellow fever. Watch out for thieves. Uh, beware of all these diseases, et cetera, et cetera. And looking at all those negatives and all the things that I've got to avoid didn't leave me too excited, to be honest, to go to Ethiopia. Holiness can feel a bit like that if we misunderstand what God's actually calling us to. It can be like something we know we have to do, but don't really want to do it. My hope for us today, though, is that by the end of today, that our hearts will be warmed in such a way that we'll actually want to be holy, as our Heavenly Father is holy. I think that's why this text is here. It's here so that we would want to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. That we'd like to imitate Him and mimic Him. But the question is, how do we actually get there? Um, if you're coming in like I was into studying this text with, to be honest, I knew it was coming and I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be a hard week because oh, holiness, it just means missing out. So how do we change our hearts so that we actually lean in and think, no, I, I want to be holy. This is a good command. This is a good thing for my life. Well, the beauty of this passage is it's structured in such a way that it will get us there. Um, if we focus on the text, by the end, we should actually be like, yeah, this is good. This is what I want. In our passage, although there's lots in it, there's actually only three commands. There's three commands, three imperatives that we're called to obey with one hope, to call us to holy living, like father, like son. The three points are these. Focus on your future, fight in your present, and feast of your past. So let's jump into point one. This will help us to want to be holy. Point number one, focus on your future. Eyes down on the text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We always have to pay attention in Scripture when there's a therefore, and we ought to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, it's a connecting clause, which means everything I'm about to say is based on everything I just said. 
And verses 3 to 12, if you flick back over in 1 Peter, are a glorious hymn of praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, um, kept in heaven for you. It's a, it's a hymn of praise. It's a celebration that even in suffering we can rejoice. And in fact, in verses 3 through 12, there's no command. There's no imperatives. There's nothing we're to do. It's just description of glorious reality. Then we get to verse 13. Therefore, and it answers this question, how are we meant to live in a hostile world? He's told us we're exiles. He told us we're suffering. He told us we're not home yet. We're not in heaven. So how are we meant to live? Well, based on all of the goodness we have, therefore, this is how we're meant to live. In verses 13 to 21, set up the rest of the book of 1 Peter, where he will give us many instructions. It's very practical, but this frames it all. And we also we have to remember that Christianity is different from every other world religion because of that word, therefore. Because grace comes before command. How we live is determined by what was already done. We don't do these commands to get into God's good books. Because we're in God's good books, we do these commands. Edmund Clowney, the great commentator, says this, The imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's crucial we maintain the order. By nature, we flip it. By nature, we start to live as legalists or self-righteous or we experience, oh, I failed so many times. And we think, oh, I'm not in or I'm losing God's salvation. Or, I'm not a very good Christian. But the whole order is actually, if you put your faith in Christ, this is what you already have. It's secured. It cannot be taken away. Now let's live in the good of it. It's grace-motivated obedience. grace motivated obedience. And obedience is certainly what we're called to, but it's because of what was done first. It's actually one of our seven shared values as Sovereign Grace Churches, that we'd be gospel-centered. And that means the gospel always comes first and is at the foundation of everything. So with that in mind, we arrive at the first command in 1 Peter. And it comes in verse 13b. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. We heard in verse 3 that we have a living hope, but now we're commanded to do something with that knowledge, and we are to set our hope fully on it. That is, completely bank on. Know with complete assurance. Look with clear eyes. Fully. That means every part of our hope is bound up in what will happen in the future. We're not hoping ultimately for anything here on earth. It's all future-oriented on the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the glory of this is if we can actually wrestle our minds in such a way that we set our hope on that, think of that day, that when Jesus Christ comes from heaven to reveal himself as judge to the world, we will only experience grace 
upon grace. There will be no wrath. There will be no damnation. There will be no hell for anyone in Jesus Christ. And so if we set our hope fully on that, that will have a transformative effect on all of our life. It's like a sailor who's at the top of a mast or, you know, whatever they call it. And he's at the top, and everyone else is on ground level. And Peter's like that sailor looking out for land. He spotted the land, and he's saying to everyone, land is coming. It's here. I can see it. Let's, let, we're getting through this storm because I can see the land. And so we're now seeing the land. Jesus Christ will return, and it'll only be grace for us. And that's to give us hope in the work as we're working on the rigging and we're scrubbing floors and we're thinking, is it ever going to end? Oh, it's going to end and it's going to end well, my friends. But how do we get there? How do we actually set our hope fully on it? Because I'm not, I don't do this. My natural instinct, I don't wake up and just think, okay, Jesus Christ is coming back. When he returns, I'm going to have full grace. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to heaven. Maybe you do. God bless you. I don't do that. So Peter, I think, understands that we don't do that. So he gives us two what are called participles or verbal um, kind of ideas in part A. Two kind of commands that function to help us set our hope. Look at it. Therefore, preparing, that's the first one, your minds for action and being sober-minded. These two phrases tell us how to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. They act as imperatives. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary, says this, Hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Thinking in a way, in a new way, does not happen automatically. It requires effort, concentration, and intentionality. We know that to be true, don't we? We don't naturally always think Christian thoughts. We don't naturally always think joy and gospel and grace. Our natural bent is filled with a million other things, good and right and necessary So we have to do what Peter says. We have to prepare our minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. And uh, they used to wear robes, and they were pretty good for strutting and looking good. Uh, But for doing hard work or for running, the robe would get in your way and you'd trip it up. Maybe the ladies might understand running in a dress. Uh, Guys, hopefully not. Uh, But what you would do is you would get the robe and you tuck it into your belt, and then you could do hard work. That's what we're to do with our minds. Our minds are often so like lazy and fat and distracted, and we have to grab the robe and tuck it into our belt and get ready for action. Put your work boots on. Roll your sleeves up would be another way of saying it for today. We have to get our minds ready if we're going to actually fill our hope um, with everything we have in the future. And the way we do that, we can't prepare our minds for action unless we are sober-minded. That is, not being intoxicated by drugs or alcohol. Uh, But not just that. I think anything that dulls the mind and distracts us and deludes us. So many dulling things that we spend our life doing. I know for me, temptations to footy tipping and super coach and Facebook scrolling and TV shows and sport. And, And they're all good things. I love them. And they're great gifts. But they can have a dulling effect. I don't know what it is for you. You might have many things that dull you. It could be good things, even your kids or your work or your career advancement or your study, but, but it actually ends up making you not sober-minded because you're so full of everything else. You've got nothing left. You're not fully prepared for action. You're not girding the loins of your mind. So there's some positive and negative applications here. The positive 
application is prepare your minds for action. Roll up your sleeves. Get ready to work. We need to be mentally willing to do the hard work to get our minds in a state to set our hope fully on future grace. It takes hard work. There's no other way around it. You can't live a consistently joyful, hopeful Christian life unless you do the hard work in your head. It means we need to read. It means we need to saturate our minds with Scripture and with good books. I realized how far I'd fallen off the bandwagon of this lately. I was sharing with Richie and my growth group guys that I'd been saturating myself in lots of things, even interesting Christian books, but not ones that were preparing my mind for action. And so I committed to reading the great classic book, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, a chapter a day. It has had a transformative effect on my soul. Uh, I, can't, I can't explain just how sharpening it has been and how I've actually been able to do what this verse says because I'm reading something which is like splashing cold water on my face and then filling it with good truth. Uh, and so I commend to you, not just your scripture reading, but attack your mind with good Christian literature. Great books like Knowing God, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, The Cross of Christ by John Stott, The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. We often don't need great technical books. It's often the most simple books that have the most profound impact. And if you've grown out of the habit of preparing your mind for action, if you're not reading much at the moment, can I commend to you, church, read, read, and read. We have an embarrassment of riches before us. And I found the transformative effect on preparing my mind for action through the practice of discipline reading. So that's the positive. Go after good thought lives. The negative um, is to remove things that are dulling you. Tom Schreiner says, Peter was not merely saying that believers should refrain from drunkenness. There's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God. That is, anesthetize. I can never say that word. Someone say it. By the attractions of this world, I can't do it. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Uh, It has a deadening effect, doesn't it? This little black hole of death. It just, (laughs) whoo, man, it is powerful and addictive. It starts to inform us about wealth prospects, career progression, relationships we have or are missing out on, relief from suffering found in comfort. We can be so filled up with what our next great meal is going to be or some kind of sexual um, experience or release. Even uh, lots of good things, TV, sport, coffee, uh, luxury, love, all these things, they're good often, but they dull us. And we have to keep sharpening our minds. And so in order to want to be like God, our Heavenly Father, Peter says, you must focus on the future. You must set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. And in order to do that, we've got to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. So that's point number one, focus on your future. Set it in your head as a constant practice. And this sets us up for the next command in point number two, Fight in your present. Fight in your present. As obedient children, verse 14 says, and it's a good Father's Day passage, obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here we have a high calling. One of the most important commands for us in all of Scripture. A driving theme for this letter. Be holy. Be holy. But this call to holiness doesn't stand alone. Peter carefully constructs an argument so that we're best equipped to live it out. So let's, let's unpack the argument. Firstly, he says, our identity as obedient children. So he's already telling us grace again. You're already a child of God. The expectation is you would be an obedient child of God, but you're already a child of God. And so our holiness isn't earning our position. Our holiness is a reflection of whose we are. The expectation is that Christians would be obedient. Just like fathers, um, as you lead your home, you should expect your children should be obedient. Obedience is not on the count of three. Obedience is immediate. Obedience is not with grudging and a drooping and a complaint. Obedience is cheerful. The type of obedience that God requires of us is not like, oh, okay, I'll give money and I'll serve and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. (laughs) That doesn't honor the Lord. Just like when children kick something as they're leaving the room, as you tell them to go to their room, that doesn't honor you as a father. That's not obedience. That's, you know, conformity to the rule, but it's not the biblical definition. And nor it is for us. So we're to be obedient children. That's the, the framing identity. Uh, in verse 18, he said that we're ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So we're children of God and we've left behind our ancestor way of living, our ancestral, our forefathers. So we're in this new reality. You're no longer a Chinese, you're not a Chinese Christian. You're a Christian of Chinese descent. You're not a Korean Christian. You're a Christian of Korean descent. You're not an Australian Christian. You're a Christian of Australian descent. You've left behind your ancestral way of living, and everything about your old way of living has to come into conformity to God. Every part. And in every culture, there's great things, common grace, that aligns with God's Word, and there's great sins which go against God's Word. Uh, And that's the beauty of having a multicultural church is we sharpen each other because naturally we have things that our culture is better at than others uh, in all of our different cultures, and it helps us to be more holy. But ultimately, our guide and our principle is not our cultural version of holiness. It's God's version. We are to be holy as God is holy. We conform to Him, not our culture. And we don't conform to the passions of our former ignorance anymore. Uh, There's still, as Christians, passions which wage war within us. The penalty of sin has been paid for. If you are in Christ, nothing stands against you. But the presence of sin, sadly, remains. It's not God's will that we be perfect. He desires us to be perfect and holy, but we never will be this side of heaven. And so the presence of sin remains, and you feel it. We feel it, don't we? These conflicting desires. Our loves are misplaced. Our, our hearts are idle factories. Uh, we, we can't but feel the, the pull. Uh, Ray Ortland says this, Sin 
is as unchosen as hunger, as comfortable as sleep, as inevitable as gravity, as lethal as poison. I'll read that again. Sin is as unchosen as hunger, as comfortable as sleep, as inevitable as gravity, as lethal as poison. We have still within us passions that are shaped by our former ignorance before we were in Christ. Lusts and dreams and futilities that are still there and we'll never fully overcome every part of our sinful nature. But we're to reject them. We were in ignorance now. Now we need to move to instruction. And the instruction is, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Before we were in ignorance, we didn't know God. Now we have what is written. We are no longer ignorant. We have the Word of God to teach us what holiness looks like. And it's from Genesis to Revelation. The whole story and all the commands depict a picture of God and how we're meant to live. But to summarize it, you could simply say, be like your Father. That's the call. God's call on us is be like your heavenly Father. Love what He loves, hate what He hates, do what He does, as you can in your you know, limited human nature. Tom Schreiner defines holiness like this. To be holy is to separate oneself from what is evil and to devote oneself to what is good. It's a two-part process. Separate from the former way, devote yourself to what is good. Not just do good as it instinctively happens, but a devotion to the good. Because you want to be like your father. You want to be like your hero, God. So you put on the team jersey and you run the plays as if you were on the team. And it's in all your conduct, Peter says. Every part. There ought to be no part of our life which is off limits to God. Our finances, our relationships, our careers, our parenting. Every part of our life ought to be holy. It's a high calling, is it not? Now, when we start to think about this, as I said in my introduction, it can sound dreary, like we're losing out, missing out, searching for some unattainable standard that even if we achieved it, we wouldn't like it. Do you instinctively believe that? If, you, if right now I could say, holy, 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 you'd be like, I'm not sure I want it. Like, do you actually want to be holy? To be honest, there's times even in this week, I'm like, do I really actually want it? Because it just, it feels like missing out. But think about this. Peter has already told us that the Christian life is one of joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And that includes a life marked by holiness. Joy inexpressible and filled with glory. I like that. And so if holiness is a pathway to that, okay, maybe I need to re-look at holiness and start thinking, I I ought to want this because I want that. Joy is not a barrier to our joy. Instead, it's a pathway. Sorry, holiness is not a barrier to our joy. It is the pathway. It must be the pathway to our joy. There is no true joy without holiness. But we often just think of holiness as behavior change. I must stop doing X, Y, and Z. And because our hearts are still conformed and, and difficult, we're like, oh, I'm not sure I want it. 
So we have to do what Peter says in verse 13, focus on our future. And we start to think about, okay, the hope we have in Christ. One day we'll be face-to-face with God in heaven. What will that be like? Okay, we'll be holy with God. What's God like? What, What type of being is God? Well, he's holy, yeah, but he's full of joy and majesty and splendor. He's full of love. Uh, He's the best being in all the universe. So when we start to think, uh, be holy, it's not completely just like live a straight life. It's a pathway into joy, into the being of who God is himself. He's saving us from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers that lead to death, disease, destruction, and depravity. And the call to holiness is into light and joy and peace. The pathway to holiness may begin at denial, but the fuel of our holiness in the long run is actually delight. The fuel of our holiness is not denial, but delight. Delight in Jesus. That is, setting our hope fully on grace. John Bloom, in a great article in Desiring God, says this, Christian... When have you been most free from sin? When have you been least motivated by selfish ambition and laziness and lust and self-righteousness? When has the fear of man, the general cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches wielded the least influence over you? When have you felt the most capacity to love others and most concern for perishing unbelievers, the persecuted church and the destitute poor? In other words, when has your life been most characterized by holiness? I can tell you. I can tell you when. It's when you've been most in love with Jesus. It's when you've been most full of faith in his promises so that you live by them. It's when his gospel has been most meaningful and his mission has been most compelling so they dictate your life's priorities. In other words, you've been most holy when you've been most happy in God. He continues, holiness is fundamentally an affection issue not a behavioral issue. It's not that our behaviors don't matter, they do. It's just that our behaviors are symptomatic. They are the outworking of our affections in the same way that our behaviors are the outworking of your faith. Holiness is not a state of denial characterized by abstaining from defiling thoughts, motivations, and behaviors. True holiness is a state of delight. And the more true holiness we experience, the fuller our joy and greater our pleasures. Friends, this is really good news. And this has changed my perspective on holiness this week. It's, a, it's delight. And, and when we get caught up in the being of God and all that he is, holiness becomes easier because it's less about what we miss out on and more about what we get saved into. And as our heart changes, our mind changes, our affections change, our behaviors change, and the whole train goes along. And so Peter's saying, Be holy like God, which means throw off the old self, put on the new self, and enter into joy. That's the invitation. Be like your father. What's your father like? Psalm 1611. In his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In his holy presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So as we await our future hope, have holy joy in fullness. We are to fight, 
don't mistake that tooth and nail for that joy here and now. To be like father, like son. So that's point two. So point one, focus on your future. Point two, fight in your present. And the fight for holiness is a fight for joy. So be encouraged to go after holiness. Point number three, final point. Feast off your past. Feast off your past. You might be thinking, how, how am I going to do How am I going to have the motivation? Well, verse 17, Peter says, and this is a hard word again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter adds to the call to holiness with a similar command, conduct yourself with fear. It seems a little bit counterintuitive to all the joy I just said, but that's the reality, the tensions of Scripture. We are to live, we know we're going to heaven, but we are to live with fear now. We're to have faith and hope and joy and fear. Fear, not abject terror, but holy reverential understanding that God is not to be one to be trifled with. The God is the judge of all. He will judge us on our deeds, Christian or not. Every single Christian will be judged and every single non-Christian will be judged. For the Christian, the first judgment will be son or daughter. So we're, we're secure. But then how we've lived the Christian life will be weighed up in the balance. We will be rewarded or not rewarded based on how we've lived here on earth. And the true sign that you're a Christian is that you live a life of holiness to the end of your days. And we ought to live with fear, knowing that we can't just take cheap grace and be like, well, I can, I'm saved so I can do whatever I want. Peter's saying, no, 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 you cannot. Live with fear throughout the time of your exile. God will judge you for every action and he sees everything. If you're not yet a Christian, this is one of the greatest sins in our culture is to say that you'll be judged. But the Bible says it. You'll be judged for every deed. If you are not yet sheltered in Christ, you're exposed to God's full judgment with no saving grace. And may I warn you, friend, I warn you with the warning of Scripture, you will not stand in that judgment. You cannot stand in that judgment because you are not holy. And God hates sin. And He will come against you with His holy wrath. And there will be no mercy on the day of judgment unless you are in Christ now. And I call you, if you're not yet a Christian, flee to Christ and receive full forgiveness and escape the wrath that is sure to come. The Scriptures speak from Genesis to Revelation of wrath. It's not our most favorite topic, but it's all the way through and we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. And so I plead with you, if you are outside of Christ, come and escape His judgment. The, that negative judgment. But then Peter goes on in verses 18 to 21 to give us a feast because he knows that we need constant motivation of the gospel to stir our hearts to actually want all that he's already said. And verses 18 to 21 form this one long section where he's just like, here's another great thing, here's another great thing, here's another great thing. It returns to our mind again. The way to fight for holiness and joy in this life is verse 18, knowing. We must know things. We've got to set our minds on the gospel. And then he outlines all these amazing things that have been done. So have a look at some of these things. Verse 18, 
Knowing what? That you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You can't tap your credit card to get saved. You were ransomed. That was bought out of slavery to your sin, to your death, to Satan with the, verse 19, precious blood of Christ. <laughs> That's a motivation for holy living. The Son of God shed His lifeblood for you. He bore the wrath of God on your behalf to bring you and present you holy in God's sight. So now you're like, oh, how could I persist in sinful living knowing that the precious blood of Christ was spilt on my behalf? Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, this sacrificial language of the Old Testament, that Jesus was perfect. We are not. But his perfect righteousness means he is a substitutionary sacrifice. He stands in our place and all the wrath of God goes on him instead of us. And we go free. That's the gospel. And so he's saying, feast on this. Knowing this will help you to live with fear throughout the exile. Knowing this will help you to live for holiness. Knowing this will help you to be joyful as you pursue it. And he goes on, verse 20 to 21. Jesus Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So this great salvation plan wasn't an afterthought. Before Adam and Eve, before the creation of the cosmos, God planned it all. It boggles the mind. I can't explain it. It's a mystery, but it's the reality. Feast on that truth. Before you were born, before Adam sinned, you were chosen for heaven. And then at the right time, he was made manifest for the sake of you. He was revealed at the exact right time for our salvation. They lived in the generation of those who saw Jesus. Peter himself knew him. He was manifested at the right time for the salvation of his elect. That's us. And through him, only through Christ, can we now be believers in God. Verse 21. You can't go through any other religion. There's no other way. Jesus Christ alone. Lots of people talk about God, but they're not talking about the same God. Because there's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. And it's through Him we become believers in God. And God raised Him from the dead. So we'll have an eternal inheritance. Gave Him glory. We'll participate in that glory. So that, and we return to where we began, your faith and hope are in God. And you see how it's bracketed. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's put it all together. This passage is a call. It frames the whole book. It's a call to holiness. But the call to holiness we've seen is a call to our joy. To be like our Father in heaven. Yes, putting off the old self, but... The emphasis on the new self. Look at who we get to become. Loving, gracious, compassionate, full of mercy, righteous, never cheating, never lying, never committing adultery, never stealing. That's the, the kind of life God wants for us. To get there, we have to focus on our future. We've got to turn the wheels of our mind to focus in on that reality. We have to fight in our present. 
Holiness and our joy will not come naturally. We're, too, we're still too sinful. We've got to fight for it. And in order to fill us up in that, we've got to feast off our past. Feast off verses 18 to 21 this week. Read it and read it again. So on this Father's Day, friends, rejoice in being God's obedient child and pursue being like your heavenly Father. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have given us this text We thank you for how transformative it will be in our life if we live it and breathe it, put it into practice. So give us grace, God. We can't do it on our own. We need your help. And Lord, I ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would conform us and change us into the likeness of you. Lord, would we be a holy church expressed in joy? May we be caught up in your eternal pleasures and delights. And Lord, may we be a light to Parramatta, a light to our friends and family who are caught up in futility, caught up in ignorant passions, missing out on holy joy. And Lord, help us to proclaim your excellencies to them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.